Welcome to the Oil and Gas Global Network's Legal and Risk Management Podcast with Sarah Stogner, where each weekly episode touches on legal and risk management issues impacting the energy sector. Visit our website at www.oilandgaslegalrisk.com for more information on today's episode, past episodes, and upcoming OGGN events. Today's episode is sponsored by ThoughtTrace, developers of Alley, an artificial intelligence platform that reads and understands energy agreements and contracts to quickly find critical data. Good afternoon. This is Sarah. I'm here with James Ho and Alessandro Biondi, and this is going to be the first of two episodes. You're in for a treat. First, we've got James that's going to be talking to us as an insurance broker, and then we've got Alessandro who's on the more technology side and we're gonna be looking at aviation and risk. So guys, I'm gonna ask each of you what I ask each guest is give me your elevator pitch. Hi, good afternoon, Sarah. Thanks for, for the invitation. So again, my name is James Ho. I'm a commercial insurance broker with USI Insurance out of, out of the Houston office. And kind of my path to where I am today was I actually started out as a, way back when, as, as an army medic at about the age of 19, went from there, ended up serving about nine years in the army, got out, went to Tulane Law on, on the GI Bill, and then instead of going into law practice, went into commercial insurance instead. At this point, about five years in commercial insurance, starting out very broadly in just kind of general commercial issues, workers' comp, general liability. And then with the recent move to, to Houston, more of an oil and gas manufacturing shipping focus. Awesome. You're smart. You didn't go for the billable hour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the subscription model, right? Right, there you go. <laughs> the okay. annual subscription, yeah. <laughs> and how about you, Alessandro? So, uh, hi, Sarah. Thank you again. Alessandro Biondi here, and I work with a technology company. So my background is a little bit not really connected to uh, to where I'm at today, but it's been, it's been a labor of passion that has brought me to where I am today. So my background is in marketing and hospitality administration. So definitely not technology, definitely not oil and gas or, or even aviation from the operations standpoint. So I, I started with my company uh, with Vision Monitor software and as a, as a business analyst. And I, it was purely looking at the commercial side and internally focused. But then I started seeing a lot of concepts that I, I had never really thought of just you know, from aviation. I'm a, I'm a, I've been a client of aviation all my life since I was born. <laughs> right. And I was in the intricacies of of the industry and uh, you know it's like everything oil and gas as well we drive our cars but we don't really think about where everything that's in that car and all those moving parts come from so i started to uh, try to be a lot lot more involved with the our technology guys and you know learned a lot about the aviation industry and so i started out in the hospitality industry and then i found that there was a lot more things I wanted to do. So I decided to take a risk and go into an industry that I didn't, I, I wasn't familiar with. I'm not by any means a technologist, but I read a lot about it. And so I, I've developed those, those skills and, and learned through, throughout my, uh, my career with uh, Vision Monitor. And one of the things that was really interesting is getting a lot more in depth within an industry that I've been a client since my whole life. And then looking at, what do they actually do? What's, what's behind the curtain? Right. And obviously, we're in the sphere of uh, risk management, safety management, and technology. And I started to find it extremely interesting where data can 
play into and improve safety and risk. And then even the fact that still a lot of people look at it as a cost rather than as a potential profit center. Right. It's a cost center. And then from there, I started you know, learning, working with the technology guys and working with subject matter experts and finding the commercial avenue of safety, making it sexy, making it, you know, making it a business opportunity for everybody to improve your safety. Right. You from the insurance side, you see the value, less risk, you know, that can be a revenue center for, for both the underwriters, but it can also be a revenue center for your clients. Right. And now what I would like to do is kind of take lessons learned from aviation and bring them into oil and gas with oil and gas subject matter experts and see where, where the commonalities are. Awesome. So James, I'm going to target you for this first episode. And what I'd like for you, if you can, to tell the listeners of, you know, we always talk about brokers and insurance and agents and policies and really, how does that relationship work? So if someone, a company, an individual, say you've got a guy that's an LLC or he's thinking about going out on his own or he's starting a new company or he's responsible for operations at his existing company and he hasn't really thought about insurance, can you give me the big picture of how does that work? What is insurance? How should a company think about it? And, and kind of what does a broker do? Okay, thank you. Of course. So that's a question we get a lot. The first thing is, you know, I, I hate to say that, you know, my field is so specialized that, that people don't understand it. But I think, you know, starting as, as far as a, a baseline where people, everybody kind of understands, just so we're all starting from the same place would be, you know, the typical agent that you see, on, you know, on TV commercials, right? The, the Jake from State Farm. I don't know if we can use. So <laughs> we'll strike that. So when we talk about we all have homeowners insurance, right. right? We all have car insurance. So I think the public generally understands that, but that relationship is different right. than the dynamic that exists in commercial lines. Right. So a good starting point to kind of understand the commercial insurance side is to start with personal insurance, right? Everybody has their personal auto, they have their home, they have their renter's insurance. So from from that standpoint, everybody kind of knows, and this is partly, you know, it's it's not necessarily a one man crusade. I think there's quite a few people on my side that are trying to get the message across. Also, is, you know, the industry, the insurance industry as a well whole, has done a very has done a very poor job, kind of showing our value, right? The the commercials about you know 15 minutes or less will save you X Y Z. I think that's trained people to think that you know, in the absence of anything else, because the insurance industry isn't telling us about anything else we must shop on price. So I think that's where most people start. And then when it comes to, you know, what does a commercial broker do, that then becomes another layer of exactly what is that purpose, right? Because the sound, what a broker sounds like is, you know, that that's a middleman, a broker is the middleman to where, you know, why do I need to go through him versus, you know, any, I can turn on the TV, I can Google and these insurance companies are out there telling me that I can work directly with them. Well, if you can give me the number to Lloyd's where I make a reservation <laughs> to buy my policy, I don't, I won't need you anymore, right? Yeah. Well, you know, we had a guy who found, <laughs> who found the Lloyd's number and called them and actually uh, was redirected back to us to say, <laughs> stop calling us. So the purpose of the broker is, right, like, this is what we do full time. You know, you might say, you know, well, I, I buy my auto insurance all the time. If I don't have auto insurance 365, I get a nasty note in the mail about, you know, what the state laws are. But on the other hand, you know, you're not buying general liability for your company all the time. So what, what are you, you know, what kind of losses are we seeing across this particular industry, across this particular geography 
that's something that somebody who's out there really focused on his job, he probably doesn't understand kind of the bigger picture. Whereas as insurance brokers, you know, we have, you know, dozens of restaurants, dozens of law firms, dozens of trucking companies, and we can see, you know, maybe it didn't happen at this particular one, but the general industry trend is this. So when it comes time for renewals, we can kind of advise that particular company on, you know, you might not have seen this, you had a good year, you had a lucky year, but the trend is moving toward, you know, these kinds of exposures, these risks are increasing, and we're kind of in a better position to explain to the business owner kind of what the, the industry trends are. Well, right. And I mean, nobody wants to air their dirty laundry, right? So anytime that there's an accident, a loss, a claim, the policyholder is certainly not out there advertising that they had a loss. And the insurance company is not out there advertising that they had a loss. So the unless you've got risk management professionals that are really going to these conferences and understanding and having these discussions, it's not that knowledge is not out there. And so one of the benefits of a broker, right, is they're in tune with both the policyholder and the underwriters to understand kind of the market, what claims they're seeing, where the trends are going, and to help advise clients on that. So you brought up a good point about renewal. So can you kind of give us from your perspective, the timeline. So say what's, you know, it, it's April, I've got a, all of my commercial policies. And so when we say commercial policies, right, in the energy industry, we mean well control and general liability and things like that. My policies are going to renew at the end of the summer. So a few months away, what's something that, how does that timeline go? I mean, is this just a one-time visit? Is it, we think about it two weeks before, you know, how does that timeline go? So ideally, the, the timeline would be, you know, sometime at about the six-month mark, your whoever's handling your insurance now should really be going out there. We call it going to the market, but it's the general insurance carriers are, for example, the Travelers of the World, the Hartfords of the World. You've probably seen commercials about them on TV. You've heard them on the radio, but, you know, there is no Hartford agent down your street that you've, you've ever seen. There's no Travelers agent that you've ever seen. We are kind of that Travelers agent, that Hartford agent. The use of that term is, you know, Hartford has said, you know, we trust your judgment. If you can bring us a client, we can tell you what we have to offer. And we trust you as the broker in the middle to explain what we offer and also also to kind of screen the client for, for a fit for what we're looking for as far as, and the insurance term is appetite, right? Some companies want trucking companies. Some companies say that trucking companies are, are too high risk. They've been out here on I-20 in right. the Permian Basin and seen the, yes. the sand and, trucks. Yes, and the, the billboards next to the, the I-20s and the I-45s of the world brings in your, your industry, right? right? So there you go. Everybody knows what happens when you're, in a trucking, <laughs> when you're in a trucking accident. That number is right there on the billboard. So part of what we do is, you know, six months out, we go out to the market, we go out to the carriers, and we say, you know, here is this package, here's this customer, right? Truck, uh, ABC Trucking of, say, Midland, Texas. This is what their past looks like. You know, these are... You know, honestly, I mean, because everybody's going to know, well, the insurance companies are going to know what kind of accidents you've had in the past. So that's obviously, first and foremost, the biggest consideration. But then we can also, as the broker, talk about, you know, well, you know, they had this loss before, but the reason behind that was, you know, maybe there were extenuating circumstances, maybe there weren't. But also we can say, you know, these are the kind of steps that they've implemented in the meantime. So us, as somebody who has an established relationship with the carrier, when we make that case, it's a little bit better than, you know, well, yeah, we had a bad year, but I'm going to try to do better. And I'm making that as as the business owner. 
Well, and you're also meeting with the policyholder, right? So you're coming in, and if it's an operator, for example, understanding those operations. Is this an oil and gas company that's doing traditional work? Are they fracking? Are they doing some type of secondary or tertiary recovery? So really trying to understand the policyholder to help advise them on the types of coverages that they need. Is that a fair Summary. Yes. So that's about half of what we do, right? So one, I want to make sure they understand what the client does and is looking for and what their risks are. But also the other part of what we offer is we advise the client on how to make themselves not just better insurance customers as far as having low rates and low claims. In reality, I really don't, you know, if, if people didn't have accidents, we wouldn't need insurance at all, right? So ideally, what the broker can and should be doing is helping the, the customer manage what kind of process they have in place, what kind of training they have in place, so that we have fewer of those accidents. So that's something that if you're calling up to, you know, if you're calling it a hundred number to buy your your auto insurance this year, you're not really having that conversation about, okay, that's fine. You know, with an accident last year, your rate's a little bit higher this year. But really the conversation you want to have is what can you do to not have that same accident the next year? Part of what you had said earlier was you know, that brokers are going to formal conferences. We do have formal continuing education that we keep up on. But a lot of it is kind of the, you know, the informal parts of what we do, right? So on any given day, I have one or two phone calls about claims. And that's really the the informal part of the education that is really just as important. Because when insurance people sit down, and you and I have had these talks before, we get very much into the technical pieces, what is or is not bodily injury versus general liability versus professional liability. And for the customer, they just really don't get that. They don't care. Right. They just, they, something bad <laughs> yeah. happens and they want to make sure that they are not on the hook for the full amount. Right? Absolutely. So, you know, I said before that I'm coming from an army medic background and I always say that, you know, the insurance policy, even though it's just a stack of paper that you feel like you paid way too much for, it's really a first aid kit, right? Like here it is in a box, you paid for it, it sits there. And, you know, in case of fire, in case of accident, you open it up and, and see what you have. Oftentimes, that's when they bring you in to say, hey, Sarah, I bought this thing. Why don't you now do the inventory with the fire going on behind me? Right. Well, and, you know, we've also talked about, I think that kind of segues nicely into a good point of you can always get a cheaper policy, right? You can always take out some sort of coverage, add an endorsement that modifies it, and it may be cheaper. You may be paying $50,000 less. Your premium will be $940 instead of $990 one year. But if you're gutting the policy, what good is it, right? So how do you come into play with kind of helping determine what coverage is and, and advising on that? So that's a conversation that we have with our clients all the time. And, you know, I'm still trying to figure out exactly where the balance is between, you know, certainly I'm, I suppose I'm in a sales role, right? Certainly there's a product there just like anybody else has a product that they sell as well. But my thing is, you know, I almost I try to tell clients what is out there, what's available to them, not so much to pressure them into buying everything as much as it is to let them know that these are the options that are available. This is something that literally happened yesterday or has happened four times in the last year that you might not know about. And, you know, in my role, I can kind of say, you know, this is the exposure. This is the risk that's out there. This is the insurance policy that can potentially cover that. But really, at the end of the day, I don't particularly care if you buy one policy or another. My main concern is that, you know, after something happens, you don't call me up to say, hey, you know, James, I trusted you to tell me what what my risks are and you completely missed this. And, you know, a lot of times what I get after the fact is, 
well, if you would have told me about that, you know, I would have bought it for sure. And well, yeah. hindsight's always twenty twenty, <laughs> right, right? Exactly. But I think maybe one thing that people don't understand is that unlike homeowners and auto policies that are on forms, which have been submitted, vetted, approved, and oftentimes required by a state's insurance commissioner, these commercial forms are not right. So, a general liability policy written by company X is not identical in wording to a general liability policy written by company Y. Right. So, you know, the people will tell you that insurance is on standard forms. A lot of these things, there are standard forms for. But what you'll have is the standard form is, let's say, the first 15 pages. A commercial policy of any any substantial size is going to run to probably 30, 40, maybe even 90 pages. So what the general form kind of lays out, the endorsements come back and tweak. I don't know if anybody's sitting with, you know, their full commercial package in front of them, but usually it'll say, you know, these are your declarations, right? You have a million dollar general liability limit, a two million dollar aggregate. But then on page three of that, it'll say, you know, you'll have a list of endorsements, right? Whether it's, you know, TX0015 and, and, and GL. I'm going to interrupt you there for if anybody ever has to look at a policy, those are the numbers that are on the bottom of the each page. And that will give you a form ID number and then a date that the that that policy form was modified. So that's what that's what you're referring to. Yes, exactly. So you know every policy can be different. Not so much the basic standard form on the first few pages, but all those endorsements make a difference. And those are endorsements that people really don't look at until after the fact. So for example, um, I have two policies in front of me here. Of course you with, do. Of course, James. <laughs> this is what I have. This is in my bag all the time. <laughs> he doesn't uh, have gum, but he's got an insurance policy form. Yes. So for example, one of the issues we run into is is defense inside the limit, defense outside the limit, right? So if you get if you get hit with a lawsuit, you're going to say, "Well, great, you know, thanks for suing me, but good thing I'm insured for that. Let me get my policy out and then my insurance company will take care of this." And certainly for the most part, insurance companies will respond to at least do that initial at least initial response and then maybe even get into the defense. And oftentimes I'll have a, I you do get, have a separate episode where I talk all about the difference between the duty to defend and the duty to indemnify. So check yes. that one out. Well, so when when you get called by, you know, insurance company X to say, hey, Sarah, we have a, a client who had this thing happen to them. Where do you come in? What do you do at that point? Well, insurance companies don't call me. They don't like me. But policyholders, usually where I come in is if a policyholder has had a claim come in, they've been sued, or even they just have somebody that's not happy with them. I help them with the policy Oftentimes, though, it's after they've received a reservation of rights or a, a declination of coverage or even a declaratory judgment's been filed where the insurance company says, we want a court to determine that there's no coverage. So maybe you can explain a little bit about what those are, what a reservation of rights is and how that whole process gets going and where you as the broker come in on helping clients through that claims process. I was was it a, too much? No, I was going down a different track. Let me just figure oh, out. Oh, yeah, no. Tell me where you wanted to go. So I was going to go with the, well, so the defense. Defense inside and outside yes, the limits. Yes, inside. So the declaration page, and this, I mean, this is outside the actual podcast. So the declaration page would be the max amount you could potentially get. Very rarely right, do right, you right. actually reach that. Right. You quickly reach it sometimes. And you can quickly reach it with defense and then be cut off. Right, exactly. So, yeah. That's what I mean. Like that's your right. liability is not. 
you very you very rarely actually get a million dollars paid to the other side because the defense eats up a good chunk of that very quickly. Right. Okay. So go yeah. back. I mean, so I'm going to ask the question. We're going to go back to declarations. <laughs> the declarations and um, defense inside the limit. Yep. Okay. 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 So you know the declaration page is really. That's really, you know, what's known called like, you know, the best case scenario, you know, in, in the event that you have a suit, potentially that million dollar policy that the first page says one million dollars, best case scenario, that's what the insurance company will pay out to the other side. Well, that's their maximum liability under the policy. Right. For exactly. one claim. Exactly. For one claim. And then we get into the details of, you know, that's what the first page says. What do those 95 other pages say as far as what is and is not covered in that million? One of the major things is defense inside or outside the limit. So when the insurance company says, you know, okay, Sarah, you know, you have a good case. Somebody else is suing you. Let's go in and get you an attorney that's going to help defend against that claim from the other side. That attorney doesn't work for free. That attorney starts billing for the work that he or she put in. And who does that attorney usually bill? Usually it goes to the insurance company. So the insurance company keeps a running tally, right? So let's say it's Fifty thousand dollars the first month, a hundred thousand the next one after that. So, and those are realistic numbers. Oh, I mean, yeah. people oh, yeah. that that scares people. But those are you know, if you get into litigation and depositions and you're going to court, you can easily start racking up six-digit monthly legal fees. Exactly. So that's where the defense inside the limit really starts to matter. Is you know, I bought that policy and I paid, let's say, ten thousand dollars for that, and I thought, okay, well, if anybody ever got hurt on my property, I'm going to give them a million dollars. Surely nobody's going to get hurt worse than that and a million dollars should cover most of what could happen but when you start getting into defense within the limit you realize that you know if you're losing six figures at a time out of that million dollars by the time that claim is settled by the time that claim is litigated you know there might only be a very small amount of that million that's left to actually pay the injured party and so and just to kind of catch everybody up there's you've got defense within the limits which means within the million dollars of your policy or defense outside of the limits and we always advise clients, you do and I do, that you always want defense outside of the limits because at the end of the day, you can't control whether you get sued or not. And as long as the allegations could potentially be covered under the policy, then your insurer is going to have a duty to defend you in that litigation. And I've got an entire episode talking about the difference between the duty to defend, which we're talking about here, and the duty to indemnify, which is if the litigation results in actually getting a judgment or a settlement where you actually pay out money and the insurance company indemnifies you, which is different and it's a much different burden. And so the defense within the limits, right? What you're saying is 10 months in and your policy could be gone and now you don't have a defense for the rest of the case and you don't have any money to pay any type of judgment, right? Right, exactly. So, right, we go back to that first aid kit, right? Like, I feel like for my $10,000 insurance spend, I bought a pretty nice first aid kit. Somebody else is offering something different. Maybe he's charging $5 more for his kit. So, you know, just within the last five minutes or so, we've kind of realized that one of the biggest things about what is or is not in that first aid kit is this defense inside the limit issue that probably for the most part, even very sophisticated insurance clients, very sophisticated, smart business owners, They've never realized exactly what that defense inside the limit. You know, they heard it. Maybe their their agent, maybe their broker talked about it a little bit, but they really never figured out what that meant. So this kind of takes it outside of that price shopping, right? So for you know whatever your personal appetite is for how much you're willing to spend, having that number, right? Like having a defense outside the limits, 
I would think at this point, you're probably willing to pay a little bit more, whether that's 5% more, 10% more, that's, that's up to the individual. Right. And that's a huge, that's where your advice comes in or somebody like me, an outside coverage lawyer can come in and say, okay, here's all the different things to consider. Then from a business perspective, you have somebody else that says, okay, this is the money. And really for a liability policy in particular, defense is one of the major things that you're looking for, right? Right, exactly. And this goes back to your earlier question about, you know, explaining the role of the broker versus the agent versus the risk advisor versus, you know, there's any, but there's any number of names out there. You know, broker generally has a kind of a bad connotation to it. A lot of actual professional commercial brokers are going away from that and calling themselves consultants, calling themselves advisors. They can probably charge more. Right. Sounds fancier. <laughs> yeah, right. Whereas like, I feel like, you know, it is what it, it is. What it is. I'm, I'm going to go by the standard name, which is, you know, we're a commercial broker. And what we do is, you know, we actually work for the client to where, you know, my job isn't necessarily to say, well, if somebody else quoted you $10,000, you know, there's any number of ways by changing the coverage, by changing the exclusions, we can say, okay, fine. If, if Sarah, the other broker, Sarah, the agent's going to charge you $10,000, I can change some of the wording on my side and come in at 950. I can come in at 5000, whatever that number is. But as the broker, I don't work for the insurance company. I really work for you, right? You have a choice of which broker you want to go to. I mean, certainly there's plenty of insurance agents out there, insurance brokers out there who let you know that they're happy to work for you. I take that responsibility as, you know, I might lose that case. I might lose that client because he or she got a lower quote somewhere else. But I'm going to make it very clear that, you know, the difference between an inside limits, outside the limits, sublimits within the general limits, that's part of what my job is. And I think that's where we kind of make that difference of, you know, why, why do I need a middleman? It's because generally for you to do very good at your job, which I wouldn't be able to do, you're not paying too much attention to exactly what the insurance terms mean and how insurance claims play out in, in the long run. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's like anything. You get what you pay for. Right, oftentimes, exactly. and it's some finding a broker that you trust and that you have a good rapport yeah. with and, to to help explain that. And, and, understand and, it. and you have a law degree, and you know I have one also. But you know, for the most part, a lot of lawyers. I mean, this is not part of your three years of law school. Is I, mean, I don't know that insurance or defense within the limits was brought up in any of my courses. I'm pretty sure it wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it, it gets pretty technical. So, you know, it's not just you get what you paid for, but also you don't want to pay for things that you're not going to need. So there are plenty of cases where, you know, there are additional policy, additional add-ons, additional endorsements that probably sound pretty good. But if you play it out, you know, and kind of play out that scenario, you realize, hey, you know, I'm never really going to need that. Let's not pay that additional premium and put that towards something else. Which, and that's where we would come in and be able to kind of help you tailor those coverages. Right. And that actually reminds me of James and I are presenting this summer at a Texas state bar. Talk about a nerdy endeavor. It is a bunch of insurance coverage lawyers for continuing education for a couple of days. And we're going to be speaking as part of a panel on cyber insurance. Right. And I think one of the big things is an industry like the energy sector or the aviation sector, they have some unique risks. And so you can't just take a liability policy that might work for a mom and pop store where their risk is slip and fall type things of guests coming in into their store and falling, right? You can't take that form and apply it to the energy sector. So 
what do you or what have you heard from underwriters or the industry in general as far as kind of some of the emerging risks or things to think about for the energy sector? Right. So for the energy sector, the main one is is the physical damage, right? I mean, if you think energy sector, you know, it's not if you think law, you think just people sitting in offices typing on computers, reading things. You think energy sector and whether you're thinking about pump jacks, drilling rigs, you know, whatever you're thinking about power lines. The energy sector is very much about physical things and not just small physical things, but very large, very expensive pieces. For the most part, your general and, you know, there's actually now a standard cyber form, which, again, I have in front of me. People can <laughs> you can look this up, but I have the standard form in front of me and it absolutely excludes any kind of physical damage to property. And you're talking about for cyber. For cyber, okay. right. And Some so kind back of a cyber up Just a second, because we, we kind of forget. What what does that mean? What is a cyber data policy, kind of, if you had to think big picture. Right. So cyber at this point is is very... It's not I just guess, Russian hackers, right? Right. It's not just Russian hackers, right? Um, so, you know, information that's left even just in, in physical paper form. Let's say you're a doctor or a lawyer and you're taking work home and you decide to stop at the grocery store on your way home, your briefcase in the back of the car, the car gets broken into, the car gets stolen. You know, that client work, that patient's information is in the back of the car. Yeah, or you've got a routing number for a bank account for a vendor that you needed to set up an invoicing direct payment for. Right. So what I got a lot before in New Orleans, which was a smaller market, was, you know, well, you know, James, that sounds great. And I see it in the news all the time that, you know, cyber attacks are happening. But, you know, we're a firm of five people. We're a firm of 50 people. We sell shoes on Main Street. You know, we don't really need that cyber policy who in Russia or, you know, any of these other, you know, Eastern European countries are really going to sit around and target ABC shoes of New Orleans. But in, but what they don't realize is there's a lot of paper out there and a, and a paper loss, a data breach through paper is still the same as any other kind of a, a privacy breach. A cyber policy covers data breaches, data, you know, privacy information in general, but also it does cover, you know, what we're hearing more about in the news is this ransomware, right? So, a business's system gets locked down, they can't do their work, and now it becomes, you know, how much money am I going to lose not being able to use my systems right. versus just paying a ransom? How am I going to get the Bitcoin to pay the ransom? Yes, exactly. Well, so, and I've seen over and over write reports on that the energy and industrial sector are one of the, is one of the most heavily targeted sectors for cyber attacks, right? Right. And, and yet, us as an industry, we're really not on board. Alessandra, I would like, can you chime in here? Does the aviation industry, how are they looking at cyber? And I mean, obviously, the commercial passenger aviation has kind of a different risk because they're accepting credit cards online and, and they're more of a point of sale. But are the manufacturers and the cargo, I mean, how is that industry looking at cyber, if you know? Well, there, there's actually a lot of a lot of data that is coming through transactions as it relates to aviation. Like you were saying, you have manufacturer's data, you have the cargo, so you have people's mail, you have people's addresses, who's communicating to whom, who's sending what to whom. You have personal information. Then you also have pilot information. And that's, that is one thing that we see actually trending a lot more is is the personal data of the staff that is flying on the aircraft. Right. So we could we could definitely take that into the energy sector, right, of an employer, the healthcare information, the marital status, the bank account information. I mean, I get direct payroll. I assume y'all get direct payroll, right? There's a lot of my personal identifying information that my employer has. So 
any employer, energy sector, aviation sector. Have you heard the aviation sector talking about buying insurance and trying to understand the risk? Or is this one area where maybe aviation isn't so far ahead of the energy industry as far as understanding and insuring risk? In terms of direct policies, I, I won't be familiar with, okay. but I know that they, because these, as a technology provider and we, we're, we get heavily deep into the, into the data right. from an operations standpoint, they do have strong data agreements and even from all the way up to government bodies. So they've at least thought about it. Absolutely. They're at least entering into contracts. And James, have you seen in general the, the guys that you are insuring are companies thinking about how to protect, not just ensuring the data, but are companies proactively taking measures to protect their information? Or do they think they've got McAfee installed on their computers and they're okay? I think that's a pretty, it's a mixed bag for right now. I think probably half of the people who call me, they come to me saying, you know, hey, you know, I had CNN on, I had Fox News on, I had whatever my media source is. And with all these things going on about, you know, Atlanta and the ransomware there and, you know, Equifax and Yahoo and whatever, I really feel like I should get some cyber insurance. You know, certainly that's my role and I'm, I'm happy to help them. But the question I usually ask is, you know, well, what do you have in place right now? How is your IT set up? What kind of training are your people doing? You know, again, taking it back to, you know, way at the beginning of this episode, we talked about, you know, instead of just talking about commercial insurance as this complicated thing that nobody really understands, taking it back to kind of the personal level, right? So if you came to me and said, hey, James, I just bought a new house. I want to insure it for fire. I want to, you know, insure it for theft. I'm going to say, okay, well, that's great. You know, what what do you have in place, right? Tell me about your house. And if you said, oh, well, you know, I've, I've never really thought about locks. You know, I just kind of, it is what it is. But, you know, that's what I'm talking to you. I want to insure for that. Or... You know, you, you buy the insurance, but you still kind of check your stove before you leave the house. You buy auto insurance in case accidents happen. But, you know, you go ahead and get your license. You know, if you have a teenage driver at home, you teach him or her how to drive. They get licensed as well. You have and an alarm system. You, you have get a discount on your home. Right, exactly. And I'm not really seeing a lot. Of, well, again, it's about half and half. Some people will come in and say, you know, I hear about cyber risks. So the answer is cyber insurance without really thinking about what is the lock of cyber insurance, just like it is for my home and my car. So that's a part where, you know, I end up having to refer a lot of work out to say, hey, you know, like, I'm happy to insure you, but you're kind of asking me to give you auto insurance when you don't have a license. Go talk to somebody else and kind of give you the driver's ed of, of cyber cybersecurity. And the insurers, this is such a new and emerging market, right? We're all kind of figuring it out together. So are there resources or insurers out there providing consultants to kind of help policyholders decide where their vulnerabilities are and what systems they need to put into place? Yes. So the answer there is, is definitely insurance companies are, are more than happy to kind of provide a, a list of, of suggested vendors. And that's fine. But, you know, a lot of those times, a lot of the times those carriers are not based in your local community. You have somebody that's in your local community that kind of understands your operations better. They see kind of what what the threats are within that community, you know, they can, under, they, because they're local to you, they can give you, again, generally a better description, a better rate on what your specific business needs versus depending on your insurance company, right? So like if you buy auto insurance and I said, oh, by the way, you know, if you come back tomorrow, I'll teach you driver's ed also. Normally you would think, well, maybe you just cover the insurance, James, and I'll find driver's ed somewhere else. Insurance companies kind of just try to fill in that gap because we're not seeing people 
who are coming in with that already done, but certainly I would suggest, you know, look through the insurance options, but also look at, you know, what your local community offers as well. Great, great. Okay, so besides the cyber, any other, oh, I would say employment practices, especially with this Me Too movement, Yes. right? So employment practices in the past has typically been, right, the way that it sounds, right? Employment practices, if you are my employee and you feel like you were discriminated either, you know, during the hiring process or now that you're on the job or, you know, there's some kind of harassment issue, those have traditionally been the employment practices. The first party coverage, which is the party, the company that pays for the policy is also the, the company that's covered by the policy. What we're seeing now is, you know, a, our expansion into third party coverages. You know, with kind of the gig economy, with independent contractors, with, you know, just remote work, let's say it's a hotel housekeeping service, right? If you outsource that and you're sending your housekeepers to other hotels where they're completely outside of what corporate headquarters, corporate management can see, any number of things can happen. Either, you know, hotel guests can make claims against what your housekeepers said or did, or your housekeepers can say, you know, this happened to me while I was at the hotel outside of... Right. Right. Or in the energy industry, especially here in the Permian right now where there's not enough housing, right? We got man camps everywhere. So if you've got one contractor's employee out at the man camp with another contractor's employee and he claims that they're harassing or there's something improper. Right. Exactly. And traditionally, you know, even for companies that do have employment practice liability, they're not reading the fine print to say, oh, you know, unless that claim is against me as the company policy holder, that's not covered. You know, really, there's very little coverage. Very little people, very few people actually have third-party policies in place. And is that available? Absolutely, yeah. So basically, everything's available, right? Well, right okay. um, but you have to know to ask for it. And let me rephrase: Is that a form or an endorsement that can commonly be added to a first-party employment practices policy? The law answer is it depends, right? It so, always um, depends. So That's yeah, there, you can either do a form where you know it starts out saying this is a first and third party policy that covers both of those scenarios, or you can have an endorsement that adds on in addition to the first party basic policy. This endorsement will also extend it to third parties as well. I got you. So cyber employment practices. Any other ones you think? Yeah. So are gonna be right big? back to the, the cyber and the energy industry is you know most people the news doesn't really cover physical damage, and again. You can go out and say, you know, I'm willing to pay whatever I need to get a cyber policy. Nine nine times out of 10, the policy that you get will specifically exclude physical damage. So a lot of people think, well, you know, it's cyber, it's, you know, it's digits, it's magic moving around in in the internet somewhere. How is that going to affect what I do? But most energy industry infrastructure has some kind of remote control systems, safety systems, precautions. Right. Valves, um, remote controlled valves. Exactly. Pressure gauges, any type of industrial right. setting. And certainly those valves and those valves and that equipment can fail on their own. And, you know, now the safeguard's not in place. Some physical damage happens to that rig. So does that mean it's only the operator that needs to worry about it? Or does the contractor need to worry about it too? Until people have a good idea of how these cyber incidents are happening, I think, you know, it's best to just kind of look at all sides. I agree. Yeah, I think exactly. everybody needs it. Yeah, because I think there's just so much, so many people cross that well site within 24 hours, 30 days, at some point, you know, you really don't know until something happens to go back and say, oh, you know, now that we have a physical damage, and hopefully your cyber policy covers physical damage, but now that this is here, how do we trace that back to, you know, the 45 people that have crossed this site within the last 30 days? Right. So again, you know, a lot of policies cover the first party, right? So like if this is my company and my equipment, 
and one of my employees did this to my computers based on you know oversight based on intentional bad acts that's one thing but really people aren't looking at the third party of you know the contractor that comes on the service company that comes on you know they have every right to get into the computer systems to do what they need to do but what are they leaving behind, whether intentionally or unintentionally? Right, and, and especially with invoicing, you know, right? We've got electronic invoicing, and where contractors, servers, people are communicating directly with operators, servers, people, and it's really easy for someone to create an email that looks like a legitimate link to uh, approve an invoice or something like that, and right. now they're they're into your system. And which is another point. In addition to the actual physical property, there's also valuable data, right? We talked a little bit about the people and the personal information of employees, but what about reservoir data or drilling information and data and royalty information for mineral interest owners? I mean, right, there's a whole plethora of stuff and information that a terrorist might want, a competitor might want. There's a whole host of potential people that could have different motives for getting into this stuff. Right. And that's what we talked about before, which was, right, the privacy data, information, security. For a lot of reasons, right, your service companies are going to these operators where the operators are probably are clearly in direct competition with each other, but they all share the same service provider. If I was to go to one operator and say, hey, give me all of your reservoir data, and I'm going to be going down the street later to just directly hand that over. I mean, that is exactly the risk that we have, right? When one service company comes on, they plug into your system, they log into your system to do what they need to do. Again, there's so much going on in the cyber world. And certainly, again, that's not my expertise to know how viruses travel around. But very easily, I could, you know, in the course of doing my job on your site, have accidentally pulled or not accidentally, but unintentionally, unknowingly pulled data from you and gone to your competitor right after that and plugged into theirs. You know, from the outside, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do, exactly what you hired me, invited me onto your site to do. But there's a lot of stuff in the background that you're probably not aware of, I might not be aware of, and still that data is getting around. It's fun. I think we're going to have to do another yeah. episode where we just completely nerd out on the cyber. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're almost out of time. Anything else that you think we need to be? It's 2018. You heard it here first. Cyber employment practices. Yeah. And this might have been 2018. I think it still goes back to that first aid kit, right? Like insurance going back hundreds of years, you know, open in case of fire, open in case of emergency. You need to check and make sure that you have what you think you have before that actually happens. I hear you. Well, thank you so much. And check us out next episode. We're going to have James here still. And then we're going to talk with Alessandro on some lessons learned from the aviation industry and maybe what us folks in the energy realm can learn. Okay, so that's the end of that episode. If you guys could do me a favor and like, leave a review for this podcast, that's the best way for us to get exposure and let other people discover how much fun we can have reviewing insurance and risk management issues. Mm-hmm.